And here we go, everybody. It is another edition of Jamal About Sports on a Monday, June 12th. That, of course, the epitome of the 80s one-hit wonder, Baltimore, with Tarzan Boy kicking it off. A lot of show to get to tonight. We've got NBA as the Cavaliers try to hold on for dear life and avoid elimination. Talk a little Major League Baseball. And uh, what I think may be in 15 to 20 years from now, the more, one of the more popular professional sports in the United States, which is clearly not at the moment. But we begin with the NBA. We've talked about it several shows. My take, as you know, Golden State just flat out the better team. They were up 3-1 last year, the Draymond Green suspension, Herculean effort by LeBron, and that team, that same team that was up 3-1 last year added Kevin Durant, right? We talked about who had more top 20 players, top 25, top 30, whatever you want to say. Golden State's big four, if you will, with Curry, Durant, Thompson, and Draymond Green, Better than Cleveland's big three of LeBron, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love, even though LeBron is the best player in the league. Now, we've seen what's happened in game one and two. wasn't even competitive. Durant has played as well, if not better, than LeBron in this series. And then in game three, which was the crusher, Cleveland played a really good game for about... 46 minutes, 45 minutes, and then sort of collapsed down the stretch. Got nothing out of Kevin Love, one basket. I think he was one for 11 in the game. Durant made huge shots, including the clutch three, late to essentially win the game. And, you know, of course, then everybody started writing Cleveland's obituary. It's so predictable, by the way. And I like Jalen Rose, who does a good job for ESPN. But I saw him on, on PTI with Kornheiser and Wilbon after Game 3. And, of course, his take was, oh, there's no way now. Uh, actually, his take was not only was Cleveland not going to win, but it was going to get ugly and they were going to get blown out. Now, I understand it's easy to say that. I can maybe understand that take had they gotten blown out in Game 3 at home. But they played a really good game and lost. I understand you could say, well, you know, that's the backbreaker. But it still is LeBron. And it still is Kyrie Irving. I mean, game three, you saw it. You saw exactly what happened. LeBron had, what, 39? Irving had 38? Kevin Love gave them nothing. I said this before the series started. All three of those guys have to have really good games for them to be able to have a chance to win. And Cleveland's bench has been non-existent in this series. Tristan Thompson, who I like, and I've always said good things about, has not played well this series. And they've gotten nothing from the rest of their bench. And that was certainly the case again in Game 3. I mean, J.R. Smith, he's not a bench guy. He he had a good game. He's a starter. He was non-existent in Games 1 and 2. He had a nice game. But... You know, Kevin, they've they got to have at least four guys. And they had three in game three. 
And Kyle Korver, you know, that was basically the turning point in the game. Kyle Korver had a wide-open three from the corner, missed, and then Durant came down and banked his three. Kyle Korver, by the way, is there a more overrated, quote-unquote, great shooter than Kyle Korver? I mean, is he? can he ever do anything against a good team? I mean, Kyle Korver's great in February against the Milwaukee Bucks, sure. Or against a bad Knicks team or any other dregs of the Eastern Conference. But in a big game against a good team, Kyle Korver gives you nothing. Again, he's supposed to be this great dead-eye shooter. A guy misses more open shots, and he gives you nothing else. That's the other problem. He can't defend anybody, and he's a one-dimensional player. He's a one-trick pony. He's a great, supposedly great three-point shooter. Anyway, great job by Cleveland bouncing back in Game 4 to avoid this sweep. I mean, you could just tell LeBron was not letting them get swept and not letting Golden State celebrate on their home court. Not that he isn't always laser-focused, but I think even if there was another level for him to take his game to and his focus and intensity to, he did. And so now we've got Game 5 tonight, 9 o'clock, in Golden State. Love to see Cleveland. I mean, look, I I, I picked Golden State to win in 7. Now I look silly. Looks like that's not going to happen. Love to see Cleveland win tonight just to, to force Golden State to a Game 6. Because as I've said many times, I find Golden State very hard to root for. Even though I really like the coach, Steve Kerr, who's been back for this series, by the way. Came back in Game 2. Really like Steve Kerr. And I love their style of play as far as how they share the ball, the pace with which they play. But I find most of the players on the team highly annoying. So, anyway. That's your NBA Finals situation. And we'll move on now to Colin Kaepernick. Talked about it last week. Giants owner, John Mara, talking about all the mail he got. Well, another week has come and gone. And... Another quarterback not named Colin Kaepernick signed, this time by Seattle, somebody named Austin Davis, who was so good he couldn't make the Browns roster, uh, nor the Rams roster, two teams with wretched quarterback situations. We talked about the fact that Seattle seemed like a perfect fit for Kaepernick, given the fact that, let's be honest, Seattle is a fairly liberal city. Washington, a fairly liberal state, has legalized marijuana. Um, And that he'd be a great backup to Russell Wilson because his strengths are very much Russell Wilson's strengths as far as playing style is concerned and playing and, and, and skill level and abilities. But they didn't sign him. They passed. Now... That could be a situation where maybe they thought he was too much of a threat to Russell Wilson. There have been some weird grumblings coming out of Seattle recently that the players themselves have, have dismissed as, as nothing but jealousy and, and hearsay. But there are some grumblings that some of the players on the team are less than thrilled with Russell Wilson and his kind of squeaky clean image and the fact that nothing's ever his fault. Um, you know, I think I said this on a show a couple of years ago to AG. Watch out for Russell Wilson. So he's got a little, little of that tiki barber, 
look how great I am, what a great guy I am. I see how much I get it in him. A little RG, a little toothy griffin to him. Hey, look at me. I'm, I'm such a good guy. A little too almost self-aware. And, and there haven't been any cracks yet in the facade, but there's a couple of rumblings coming out of Seattle. So maybe they felt that bringing Kaepernick in purely from a, a locker room dynamic standpoint and a football standpoint that that's not, you know, they, they don't want a backup to Russell Wilson who, if Russell Wilson were to have a rough stretch, the media and the fans would be clamoring for to replace him. Right now, the Seahawks don't have a quarterback on their roster. Russell Wilson could go, you know, zero touchdowns, 15 interceptions in the first four games of the year. There's nobody on that roster right now that you would say, well, we got to replace Russell Wilson with X. It's not going to be Trevon Boykin, and it's certainly not going to be Austin Davis. So maybe that was the reason. Maybe it was actually a football reason, not a political reason why they didn't bring Kaepernick in. But, I mean, it is amazing. The litany of mediocre to flat-out scrubs that have been signed in this offseason and not Colin Kaepernick. And make no mistake, by the way, this isn't just about the kneeling during the National Anthem. This is a clear message to the rest of the players in the NFL that, hey, big boy, or big boys, or whomever, uh, we're not having this. Okay? You want to speak up on social issues like this, particularly in this climate in which we live now? Guess what? This is what happens to those who take stands or take a stance that's unpopular. Again, let's ignore all the good things Colin Kaepernick has done, right? Let's let it let's define him by this one thing. It's really it's sad. It's sad. And again, I I understand he's not a perfect player. I know this. Everybody knows this. Anyone who follows football at all knows this. But you're going to tell me that he couldn't help a team as a backup quarterback? It's crazy. I mean, I'll tell you this right now. As a Lions fan, okay, I like Jake Rudock. He's their backup. They drafted him in the sixth year out of Michigan last year. He looked pretty good in the preseason. By all accounts, he's had a very good offseason. They drafted Brad Kaya from Miami. Who knows, right? He was highly thought of at one time. His draft stock fell, obviously. He was a sixth-round pick. Let's just say, for argument's sake, Matthew Stafford, God forbid, suffered a season-ending injury, you know, in the preseason or week one or week two. And Jake Rudock played and stunk. You tell me I wouldn't want the, I, I if I were the Lions I'd sign Colin Kaepernick in a second. Now I don't want that to happen, of course. Stafford's my guy. I love him. So anyway, moving on. Major League Baseball: the Yankees will be the the first team we start with this evening. My boy Justin Rubin's team, Johnny Turpak, as you well know, AG, 
all big Yankee fans. And I said at the beginning of the year, I thought they were going to be better than people thought. I didn't think they were going to be this good. And certainly, I mean, they are just mauling people, bludgeoning teams. I mean, what, they won 14-3 yesterday. Aaron Judge with a near 500-foot home run to to deepest left center field in Yankee Stadium. I mean, everybody on that team is mashing. Now, Aaron Judge, bear in mind, struck out 42 times in about 86 at-bats last year in his his, his late-season call-up with the Yankees. He's hitting like 330. He has 21 home runs. The power is not surprising, right? The guy's a monster. He's 6'7", 280 pounds. The fact that he's hitting 330 is stunning. Nobody in their wildest dreams thought he... I mean, I think Yankee fans would have signed up for 250, let alone 330. Aaron Hicks is hitting 330. Starlin Castro is hitting 330. Matt Holiday's been a great pickup for them. Hitting home runs. Gary Sanchez, who was hurt, now he's back. He's already he's back. He's got 10 home runs. I mean, they're just killing the ball. And they're doing this all without their best pitcher, Masahiro Tanaka, giving them much. He's been bad. So from that perspective, if you're a Yankee fan, you have to be thrilled. I mean, there they are, 14 games over 500, 37-23, four-game lead on the Red Sox, getting nothing out of their ace, or very little, getting a pretty good resurgent season from CC Sabathia, which I don't think anybody was planning on. Michael Pineda seems to finally, maybe, have shed the, the, the tease label, which is, you know, one great start and then one horrendous start. He's been pretty good. This Montgomery kid has been pretty good. We know they have a good bullpen with Batances and Chapman. Tyler Clippard's been eh. Chasen Shreve has been great, but, you know, we saw this out of him a couple of years ago where he was great for a long time, and then he was an absolute disaster in September. So if you're a Yankee fan, of course you're thrilled right now. It's a long season. Let's talk to me in September and see if Aaron Judge is still hitting 330. See if Starling Castro is still hitting 330. See if Aaron Hicks is still hitting 330. Now, Aaron Hicks and Gregorius is hitting 330. Now, Aaron Hicks was a savvy pickup by Brian Cashman. Let's be fair. Aaron Hicks was a big prospect for the Twins, was supposed to be a stud for them, was supposed to be their center fielder of the future, never panned out. But he's still pretty young, and as we talked about in the past, on past shows, sometimes it just takes, you know, maybe a change of scenery, and or it's a little, takes some certain guys a little longer for the proverbial light to go on. And they seem to have really hit on this guy. You know, he, he played better down the stretch last year, and he's been off to a great start for them this year. Now, I'm not saying he's not a good player. 330 may be asking a lot. And so if you've got five guys that are all way overperforming what you think they're going to do, Obviously, that tells you that there's big slumps coming at some point. And despite all their success, they re- they only have a four-game lead, and it's still super early. All right, we've got three and a half months left to go, and the Red Sox have not been great. They kind of have a you know fits and starts. They really miss Ortiz in the middle of that lineup. You know, while they have. 
very a lot of very good hitters. They don't have that one big masher that really scares you. And their pitching has been disappointing. David Price has been an unmitigated disaster. Not surprising. I mean, they signed him last year, that ridiculous seven-year, $210 million contract. And, of course, now he's battling the media, the Boston media and the fans. That's always a good idea. And, you know, bad in the postseason. Started out the year hurt. Got smashed by the Yankees the other day, which, by the way, is no surprise. I mean, could that guy ever get anybody on the Yankees out ever? I mean, he stunk against the Yankees when he was on the Rays also. You know, Drew Pomeranz, eh, Porcello. Yes, he won the Cy Young. Anybody follows baseball knows Rick Porcello, again, it's a nice number three, normal four starter. And he's pitched about a low four ERA, I think, this year for the Red Sox. But if Price gets it and kicks it into gear, and if some of the hitters in the, in the Red Sox lineup start to get hot. I mean, Jackie Bradley Jr. has not had a great start. You know, Mookie Best has been good, not great. So despite all the Yankees' smashing success, which is legit so far, of course, not a huge lead. It's a long season, is all I'm saying. Long season. But listen, give them their due. Brian Cashman's a good GM. You know, I know Yankee fans got it. We're all over him a couple of years ago. And not my Yankee fans. I'm talking about, you know, the, the people that call into the talk shows. You know, because God forbid the Yankees only won 85 games. Which was a miracle that they did with that stinky team. But, you know, look, trading for Gregor- for Didi Gregorius, that was, that was a smart trade. Didn't look great at the time. Looks good now. The Castro trade was a good trade. Aaron Hicks, good trade. You know, young guys with upside. Young position players with upside. Sandy Olderson, you may want to pay attention. And again, this, the, the, the Yankees starting pitching has been better than they thought, even with Tanaka not being great. And you knew they were going to have a good bullpen. But it's a long season. I mean, there, there has to be a return to the mean in some of these, to the mean of some of these guys. I mean, I know Aaron Judge is, is setting the world on fire, and rightly so. I think it's a lot to ask for him to be a 330 hitter. So, but enjoy it now, of course. I mean, they're, look, they're 22-9 and nine at home. They have a plus-115 run differential. I mean, they're, they're playing great. They just bludgeoned the Orioles over the weekend, who are really struggling. No pitching. They're a terrible road team at 10 and 20. Great home team. Awful on the road. Tampa Bay somehow hanging in there at 34 and 32. And the Blue Jays, after a miserable start to the year, at 31 and 32. And they are dangerous because Joey Bats is starting to hit. Justin Smoke has had an unbelievable year for them. Guy was a big prospect for the Rangers a few years ago, never really panned out. Played okay for the Blue Jays the last couple of years. He's been great for them this year. He's got like 16 home runs, maybe even. Let me see. He's got a. T- he's had a great year. Joey Bat starting to hit. They got Josh Donaldson back. Tulowitzki's back. Kevin Pillar is a great center fielder. 
probably the best defensive center fielder in baseball. And now they're starting to get their pitcher. They got J.A. Hat back. Stroman's been okay. Estrada. Decent bullpen. Blue Jays could be formidable. I mean, they were they were dead and buried at the end of April. And now they're one game under 500. And the other interesting story, the Astros, who are also just mashing people at 44 and 20. And I know Dallas Keuchel, their, their, their ace went on the DL. I don't think it's going to be a long-term thing. You know, terrible year last year, great year the year before. Lance McCullers Jr. has been really good as their number two. They need to probably add at least another starter. And the thing that scares me about the Astros is their bullpen. Their setup guys are okay. Brian Giles, their closer, who they got from the Phillies last year, very hit or miss. And can you trust him in a big spot in a playoff game? But again, really good young lineup. Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, George Springer, uh, to, just to name a few. So they, they've got a you know, twelve look at them, twelve game lead in the in the AL West, which is a terrible division. Nobody else in the division is above five hundred. Angels are 33-33. I don't even know how. And Trout's on the DL is gonna be out for a while. Mariners are thirty one and thirty three. We've talked about, you know, kind of unfair. They, they've lost almost all their starting pitchers. I think Paxton is finally back, but King Felix is still on the DL. The Rangers, 30-32, bullpen issues all over the place. Good lineup, not much pitching. And then the A's, 27-36, they're not any good. And in the Central, yeah, the Twins are still in first place, 32-27, five games over. You know, they, nobody, you know, they're, they're weird. 12-18 and 18 at home, 29 on the road, that's strange. They have a minus 28 run differential. Other than... Uh, Irvin Santana and the uh, and Berrios, the rookie, their starting pitching is lousy. Bullpen is not great. And, you know, so all the numbers would tell you that this is not sustainable. And I would agree. I mean, I think the Indians still win that division. I know they, they have been, you know, again, very much like the Red Sox, fits and starts. They, look, they have a good week, then a bad week. They're 31-29. and 29. They need to get their pitching straightened out. They've got the, you know, with Shaw, Allen, and Miller as good a three in the back end of a bullpen as anybody, their starting pitching has been very inconsistent. Kluber has been okay, but he was hurt. Carrasco, they just moved Salazar to the bullpen. Tomlin, Bauer, I mean, you know, the Indians could have a really good rotation. It just hasn't panned out yet. Lineup is pretty good, but, you know, some guy, you know, Santana's hitting 220. Lindor's been good, not great. I think the Indians have a lot of good baseball ahead of them. I would, I'd be surprised if they don't win. I, I'm gonna, I would say that they would win that division. And then we go over to the National League and my New York Metropolitans. So, if I started to get some guys healthy, Cespedes came back. Seth Lugo and Steven Matz came back, and after splitting the series with the Rangers, uh, a game, the game they lost, they lost 10-8, Jacob DeGrom was awful, after being awful the game before that also, which is troubling, and he pitches tonight, 
and against the Cubs, they need a good start from out of him in the worst way. Um, but couldn't the weekend series against the Braves four games could not have gone any better. I mean, they went three and one, and they lost, of course, lost a heartbreaker in one of them. Bullpen, of course, again. You know, Harvey threw five shutout innings. They had to pull him because he was at 96 pitches. Um, so five shutout innings you like. Wasn't a particularly uh, efficient five innings. And then, of course, the bullpen blew the game. Uh, and they blew the game, by the way, on a Curtis Granderson lollygag lazy play on a base hit to center field. The guy scored going for, uh, from first to home. No, Sorry. It was a base hit to center field, routine single to center field, and because he Cadillaced and lazily retrieved the ball and didn't charge it hard, uh, Dansby Swanson, I believe, was the hitter, uh, turned what should have been a routine single into a double, and then the next guy got a base hit for the game-winning run. Curtis Granderson, Mr. Hetty Veteran, did the same thing, similar thing last year in a game against the Braves, where he lollipopped a throwback in on a, on a fly out, a routine fly ball to right field, and so the runner at second was able to tag and go to third and end up scoring on, on a ground out, and Mets lost that game by one run. This is Curtis Granderson, can't get out of his own way, is a heart, and has been awful with the bat this year. And supposed to be a veteran leader, yet that play is tolerated. That kind of play has been tolerated by Terry Collins since the day he showed up. It's ridiculous. And I understand everybody loves Grandy, and yes, he's one of the best guys in baseball, no question. But that that is unacceptable. Can't have it. Cannot have it. So anyway, but the rest of the weekend series went great. Matt's seven innings, one run. Cespedes hit a grand slam in one of the games, the doubleheader. Lugo, seven innings, one run yesterday. Mets squeaked out a 2-1 win. They won 6-1 and 8-1 in the two games of the doubleheader on Saturday. A little momentum now coming back home. Three with the Cubs, then they have the Nationals. They've got a tough schedule. I know the Cubs have not been great. They're at 500, but again, talked about them. Expect them to be better if they get their pitching straightened out. But the Mets are 28-33. You know, they, they, they've, give, they, they've, they've taken their mulligans. It's time to start playing. And now they've got basically their full complement except for Syndergaard and except for Familia. Now, the Familia thing really hurts because A, he's one of the best closers in the league. And Addison Reed was one of the best eighth-inning guys in all of baseball last year. His numbers were tremendous. And now he's been pretty good lately. He's 11 for 13 in saves. Got a good save yesterday. Nice clean inning. Struck out two. No hits. No walks. In a tight 2-1 win. He had a couple hiccups early. He's looked better lately. But, you know, no familiar is really hurting them. And then you add the fact that Terry Collins doesn't know what he's doing with the bullpen. And, you know, ruined guys like Hansel Robles, who's now a triple-A. Uh, who they need back in the worst way. I mean, you know, Terry, enough with making Hansel Robles. One game he's a long man, then the next game he's a setup guy. I mean, look, Hansel Robles should have one role. Seventh inning. That's it. That is it. And you can't bring him in with guys on base. He doesn't handle it well. 
Let him start an inning. When the Mets have a lead and it's the seventh inning, bring the guy in. I mean, I understand there needs to be a little bit more flexibility than that, but not much. And this is one of my biggest issues I've always had with Terry Collins. It's like he does not understand the strengths and weaknesses of the players on his team. And again, tonight, I don't understand why his lineups. So, Michael Conforto's been hitting leadoff and or second now that Cespedes is bad. Somehow not in the lineup tonight. Somehow Wilmer Flores is in the lineup tonight. Because, oh, because he took an 0 for yesterday, even though he had a sack fly. But he's been raging hot. And he's got Granderson hitting leadoff tonight. And Neil Walker hitting second. I mean, does he pay attention? I, I just, I don't know, I don't get it. Oh, by the way, uh, is Drupal Cabrera, three more errors over the weekend. Two in one inning, the game Gesellman pitched, which, you know, made him throw 15 extra pitches. And, you know, okay, Gesellman did a good job, and none of those uh, errors ended up costing the Mets any runs, but it cost him 15 extra pitches. And in this era of, you know, pitch counts of 100, and then we got to get a guy out of there, it's a big deal. And I guess I understand he made a nice play with the bases loaded to turn a double play, get the Mets out of an inning without giving up any runs. But 10 errors in like 50 games, that's ridiculous. And he's not hitting at all. He's not hitting a lick. Can we get Ahmad Rosario up here, please, Sandy Alderson? Enough with this uh, Isdrubal Cabrera, please. Or move him to third base. Although I want Wilmer Forrest playing third base. And enough with Jose Reyes, too, please. Enough. He's hitting 185. I mean, please. You want to keep him on the team as a bench player, okay. He cannot be started. But if Max is going to be good, and if Lugo is going to be good, you hope you're gonna you have to hope and assume that DeGrom, these last two bad outings are blips on the radar. And Gesellman has been very good his last three or four starts. And Harvey is, you know, pet. That's 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 five. And I think the Mets are actually going to go to a six-man rotation. So what am I missing? DeGrom? Oh, and Wheeler. And Wheeler's been very good, actually. Wheeler pitched a great game against the Rangers. That was the game they won. So that's your six-man rotation to start. And that's a start. But moving forward now that they've got... Their full complement back, except for again, Syndergaard. You know, if the Mets could just look, Reed's been better as a closer. I still don't necessarily trust him all all the way. Certainly not as good as Familia, but he's been better. Blevins has been pretty good. He blew the the game Wheeler pitch, but the Mets ended up coming back and winning. But other than that, Blevins has been very good. Paul Sewold was good for a while, and he was awful in that game against the Pirates, and he blew the game against the Braves the other night. But I wouldn't give up on him just yet. You know, the Mets need to find another arm for that bullpen, at least one. Salas is, is shot. I mean, he's gone. He's just done. He, he cannot be trusted anymore. And that's on Terry Collins. We're completely overusing this guy. So the Mets need at least one other arm, maybe two. I get Robles up here, you know, I know he had one horrible outing at AAA. It's hard to judge. Again, those ballparks, Reno, 
uh, Las Vegas, Colorado Springs. I mean, they're all band boxes. They're all hitters' paradises. All the infields in the PCL are rock hard. So, you know, balls that would probably be routine ground ball outs in major league parks or go for base hits. Uh, you can't necessarily judge just by ERA and the numbers. If he's throwing the ball well and striking people out, get him back up here. You know, this is, the Mets love to do this. They, they're basically, it's like Kevin Bacon at the end of Animal House. You know, when they have the big parade and all chaos ensues and pandemonium ensues and all's well, remain calm! All's well, remain calm! I mean, guys, pay, pay attention to what's going on. I understand some of it was out of control with the injuries, although you also botched the injuries. We've talked about it ad nauseum. I won't rehash all the ways the Mets have mismanaged the way they handle injuries. Okay. But, you know, enough with the whistling through the graveyard stuff. Understand the deficiencies and address them. You know, and don't give me Neil Ramirez as an answer in the bullpen. Ridiculous. But, again, feeling a little bit better if you're a Mets fan. And here's the other thing. I understand the Nationals are murdering the ball. Daniel Murphy apparently now is, you know, is George Brett. And, you know, we all know Harper really is good. And Ryan Zimmerman has had this ridiculous resurgent year. And Anthony Rendon has hit. I mean, their whole lineup is hitting, basically. Even Michael Taylor has hit some. And they've got good starting pitching. But that bullpen is a mess. And now, you know, it looked like they were starting to stabilize with Coda Glover. Well, apparently he got hurt in the shower, didn't tell the team, came in, blew a game, and now he's on the DL. I'm telling you, I know they're 38-24. It's a long season. That's what's so frustrating and galling about the Mets and their self-inflicted wounds. Because if they were just 500 right now, rather than five games under, you'd feel great. I would, anyway. Because that Nationals bullpen is going to be an issue for them all season long. Unless they go out and make a big trade and get somebody. You know, if they go get Herrera from the... uh, If they go get Herrera from the Royals, although he's been shaky, but, you know, one of these closers on a team that's bad... then, you know, that might help. Well, but they've got major issues in that bullpen. And that starts to wear you down. Again, I understand they like to, you know, they bludgeon teams to death. That's that's all well and good. But, you know, the big difference between the Mets and the Nationals, the Nationals uh, bullpen ERA is the second worst in the, in the league behind the Mets, I believe, in the National League. The big difference is, is that the Nationals starting pitching has been better and they go deeper into games. But again, now that the Mets have got Mats back, I mean, Mats went seven innings. Lugo went seven innings. It's amazing how that works. Starting pitcher goes seven innings, how much easier it is. You know, Gisellman went six and two-thirds. Wheeler went seven. I mean, that's their, their last start. They had Wheeler, other than Harvey going only five, on, and of course they lost that game. But is, you know, Wheeler went seven, Gesellman six and two thirds. Matt uh, Matt seven, Lugo seven. 
Four in the last five starts. They won all those games. No coincidence. All right, we'll get you. We'll get you out of here on this. So I watched. Actually, <laughs> I watched. Congratulations to the Penguins winning the Stanley Cup. I actually watched that game last night. I watched. It was, I guess, game six, and I actually watched it. I'm not going to say I watched it from beginning to end, but I watched a fair amount of a hockey game because playoff hockey is actually pretty interesting. It's fun because so much is riding on it, and you can kind of just feel the the intensity and the energy. Now, I understand hockey does not translate well to television. And I don't know a damn thing about hockey and strategy or anything. It, it all just looks like sort of controlled chaos to me. Although, you know, the more I watch the game, I can kind of pick up on some things, you know, what looks to be like an aimless, you know, sort of pass or a guy just chucking, you know, knocking the puck the length of the, 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 the ice. You understand he's doing it to give the goalie some rest and, and give the defense some rest. I get a little bit of it, but I, I don't pretend to know much, if anything, about the strategy of hockey. But it was fun to watch. But that brings me to my final point of the show. And that is congratulations, a belated congratulations, to the University of Maryland, my alma maters, men's and women's lacrosse team, both of whom won the national championship. But if football continues to go the way that it's going with uh, the head injuries, and even if it doesn't, but especially if it does, and you have more and more parents reluctant to let their kids play football, lacrosse is going to be a thing. It's already starting to be. ESPN's starting to give it more and more coverage. And I watched that lacrosse game, and it's fun to watch. It just it translates pretty well to television. The pace of play is great. There's not a lot of stoppages in play. It combines the skill of hockey, as far as the stick handling is concerned. It involves some of the physicality of hockey and football, although it's not nearly as physical as sport. Don't get me wrong. I know it's not. But there's, some, there's, you know, there's checking. There's guys knocking each other down. There's some of the, the athleticism and skill and ability of basketball where guys kind of running like pick and rolls to try to score. So it combines a lot of good elements of a lot of exciting sports as none of the slow pace of baseball, which you know the millennials hate and kids hate. The pace of play is great. It's kind of easy to pick up the, 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 the strategy. And ESPN, I have to give them credit. They did a nice job covering it. They got these guys, Paul Carcaterra and Quinn Kestnich, both guys who are great college lacrosse players in their own right, and they explained the game well. So I would not be surprised at all if in about 15 years from now there's a viable major North American professional lacrosse league. Would not be surprised at all. I mean, look, lacrosse used to be this niche sport, right? Reserved really only for the wealthy, the privileged Northeast, Atlantic Coast, right? In Maryland, Johns Hopkins, some Ivy League schools, Princeton, Duke, Cornell, Syracuse. I mean, that's that's who was good in lacrosse in college forever. Now you've got, I mean, Ohio State was in the finals against Maryland. 
Denver was in the quarterfinals. Denver. I mean, the sport's moved out west now. Notre Dame has a good lacrosse team now. So it's not just for the northeast sort of Atlantic Coast elite anymore. It's spreading across the country. And so, again, it may take a while. But I bet you in about 10 or 15 years, there's a major or a viable professional men's lacrosse league. All right, that'll do it for tonight's show. Thanks for listening, and peace out.